blessing to them and uh, also your support for Alexandria is just one of those things that uh, is, is continually exciting to us, continually exciting to them as well as the folks who are there. And uh, so I've been in the area now for about two and a half weeks and we have uh, about four folks who are coming and coming faithfully. And so I'm going to ask you to keep that in your prayers. But my objective this evening uh, is to uh, uh, tell you a little bit more about us and a little bit more about our ministry uh, and the work there in Alexandria and kind of how it is that they connect. And I've got a slideshow, and so if we'll go ahead and get to the first slide there. And uh, our, our ministry there, it's called Upper Midwest Church Planting, and we are the Eisminger family. You can go ahead and go to the next slide, the one that's just our prayer card there. And... Uh, that is uh, my, my wife and I, we've been married for uh, pert near eight years, and uh, just two years ago, the Lord gave us our, our son, and uh, so he's two years old now, and uh, you may notice that he makes a little bit of noise every now and then, but he's just excited to be here, amen? And uh, uh, so, it was really while I was pastoring in Michigan that God called us to Minnesota, uh, church planning has been something that God has burdened me about uh, ever since I was an early teenager. In fact, there were some people in the church that I was pastoring who had known me since I was a teenager, and they said when we used to pick you up as a teenager and drive you to youth activities in the, uh, the other town, you would talk about church planting the entire ride. And uh, when my church eight years ago called me to be their pastor, there was a lady who came up and spoke to me and said, and said, Pastor, I voted yes, but I almost didn't. He said, it's not because I don't want you to be our pastor, it's because I know that God is going to send you to plant a church somewhere. I know that God's going to do that, and I never want our church to be the reason that you're out of the will of God. And I made her a promise. I said, when the Lord calls me to go and plant churches, I promise you that I will go and I will not remain. And... Uh, that time came this past summer. Uh, I was up here uh, with Brother Brent Winter, and uh, we were actually driving to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And along the, the, the drive, we're going through all of these little towns, and I'm asking him, I'm like, well, who's here, and who's here, and who's here? And the answer every time was, nobody, there's, there's not a good church here. And so the Lord really burdened me. We were driving to a revival meeting, and that night, God just made it painfully clear that He was calling us to Minnesota to plant churches, and so uh, we went home, didn't know exactly where, didn't know exactly when, just knew that God was, was, was moving, and so uh, my wife and I really began to research a lot about the area, and uh, what we found was that when it came to, this is the phrase that I'll use, and I'll explain it just a little bit, when it comes to Baptist churches like this one, the upper Midwest is one of the hardest hit regions in the entire country. And it's a question of access. Are there more people in New York City? Yes. But if there's somebody in New York City that wants to go to a Baptist church like this one, guess what? They're there. In Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Iowa, there are so many different places where if somebody wants to go to a Baptist church like this one, they're just hard out of luck. They've got to drive for a very long time in, uh, in order to get to one. And the numbers were astounding. And so it was really that question of access that we, we, we kind of leaned into. Go ahead and go to the next slide there. And uh, this is the one. Let's see. Yeah, these are going to pop up individually as graphics. So as we started to look, we asked this question, how many counties are there? 
that, that are in need of a Baptist church like this one. Baptist church like this one. Let's talk uh, about this. Um, there are a lot of different churches that have Baptist on the sign, uh, but they kind of have different sort of things going on. And uh, the thing that makes us Baptist are the Baptist distinctives. And we can just kind of talk about three of them. One, the authority of the Word of God. Two, individual soul liberty. And three, the priesthood of the believer. And these things are going to sort of identify a Baptist church like this one versus potentially some other churches that have Baptists on the sign, but they operate in a very sort of a different way. And so we looked at that and found some websites with some resources and started combing through some counties. And we found that in South Dakota, there were 200,000 people living in counties without one. We go to the next one there. It's going to be North Dakota, 161,000 people. But notice here we're real spread out, right? These are the communities and the counties where there's ranching going on and that sort of thing. Few people there. We go to the next one. It's Iowa, 716,000 people in about half as much space. Iowa is a place that is in need and in desperate need of some good churches. Then we got to Minnesota, and this one blew my mind. It's 1.2 million people. 1.2 million people living, and again, that's the question, access without access. That is more than any other state in the country. If we go to the next slide, what you'll see is uh, the county breakdown. I think that's what the next slide is there. Yeah, yeah, the county breakdown, and if we go to the next graphic, that it'll show you 54 out of 87 counties are in need of a good, solid uh, uh, Baptist church. It, it is an astounding thing to think about how this has happened in our country, but this is just it, is it didn't used to always be this way. This is a situation that has been developing over time. If we go to the next graphic, which I think is going to be Douglas County. No, okay, it's the county breakdown. So the area that we are specifically focusing on, if we go to the next graphic, is northwestern Minnesota. I, I'm, I'm sorry, west central Minnesota. And uh, this portion of the state, uh, five years ago, had 12 counties that needed a Baptist church, okay? 12 counties. And uh, then uh, Pastor Silas Clark came and planted Elbow Lake Baptist Church, and he did so in Grant County. And uh, then a little while ago, down in Chippewa County, uh, Brother Brent Winter came and he planted a good church there. And now where we are going is Douglas County, which is the next graphic there. There's a couple of things about that. One, it's centrally located. That's real nice. We'll get to that later. And two, uh, it is the largest county in the area. There's 33,000 people there in that county. And you see that that this area is made up of rural counties. Uh, uh, Grant County has about 9,000 people in it, and that's the one just west of Douglas County. That's where Elbow Lake is. And so Elbow Lake is the county seat. There's not a stoplight in the entire county. And uh, I just found that out the, the other day. I was, with, I was with Pastor Silas, and we rolled up to his stop, and I, and I went, oh, wait, this isn't a stop. There's no light. And he goes, no, we should get one, and then we'd have one in the county. And so he was kind of telling me about that. But yeah, uh, uh, these rural counties, and this is what it is, right? Is these counties are made up of a lot of agricultural communities, 
And those communities are very small. We're talking like 100 people, 200 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, 3,000 people. And this is what there is. A strong presence in those communities of religion. There are Lutheran churches everywhere. There are Catholic churches everywhere. A strong presence of religion, which is an emphasis on what man must do in order to receive the grace of God. But understand this, that we are people who don't teach and preach religion, but teach and preach relationship. That it's not about what we can do, but it's about what the Lord Jesus Christ has already done. We are talking about a witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In many of these communities, there is a tremendous lack of just that. uh, somebody bearing witness to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there there are certainly some churches in these communities who are going to do a presentation of the gospel, but what about then a relationship that moves beyond salvation and into sanctification with an emphasis on all the counsel of God, like the Apostle Paul talked about in Acts chapter number 26. What about that? The question is, is that as we, are we as Baptist people willing to let just a church that happens to have the gospel correct, are we willing to allow a community to go and just say that that's enough? And say that that's good enough? Or are we going to try and do more? Well, this church has made up its mind because you folks are laboring in this field of the upper Midwest and beyond just simply the part of it that the Lord has placed you in. If we go to the next slide here, Douglas County, there's 300 lakes in Douglas County. Ice fishing is like a religion there. They've already taken me ice fishing twice, and uh, I've never been fishing before in my life. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, uh, (laughs) uh, I caught more fish than everybody else both times that I went. Amen. And uh, so Douglas County, if we go to the next graphic here, and uh, there's uh, 38,000 people in the next graphic there. What you're going to see is, and the next graphic as well, 63 bars and liquor stores here. In that next graphic, 53 Lutheran churches in the entire county. 53 Lutheran churches. Now, if we move on to Alexandria, which is the next slide here, this is the largest city, not only in Douglas County, but it's near the largest city for about 100 miles either direction, somewhere along those lines. And uh, you can get up to Fargo and St. Cloud, which are on the diagonal. But if we're talking straight north and straight south, Alexandria is the biggest. They got 14,000 people. That's the next graphic there. This is the interesting thing. This is the, the story of Alexandria is the story of so many of these communities. That next graphic will show you zero Baptist churches. Zero Baptist churches in this entire city. In the last 20 years, there have been three. There have been three. Three good ones. Two of them closed their doors. One of them changed with the times, as sometimes churches do. And uh, recently, I think it was about two years ago, they finally just took Baptist off the name entirely because they've been uh, operating just as an evangelical church for a long time. And so they finally just put that in the name. This is the situation that Alexandria is in. Now, Lord called us to Minnesota this past summer and... uh, We were praying about where and when. We're doing all this number research, looking at the area. And uh, uh, Pastor Silas calls me up and he's like, I heard you're coming to Minnesota. 
And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, where and when? And I said, I don't know and I don't know. Right now, we're pretty happy where the Lord has put us and we're just praying for Him to, to lead and show and uh, we're, we're doing some research. I say we're doing some research. It was my wife found all those numbers. But uh, um, uh, I, I said, we're just looking. And he, he said, I'd like you to pray about this. And uh, he told me about Alexandria, told me about the need. He had been trying to get something going in Alexandria for a long time. Uh, it had been uh, a number of years. He'd held special meetings under a tent. He'd held, um, uh, uh, gone out and done a bunch of soul winning, had some converts. He'd been doing discipleship uh, in a coffee shop and having a Bible study there. And the Lord had just burdened him to go and do some traveling, raise $20,000 and get a storefront and just take a step of faith and say, we're just going to try and kickstart something and trust that God provides everything. And the Lord was doing that in his heart the exact same time that God was calling us to Minnesota. My wife and I prayed about this thing in, in uh, Alexandria for a while, and um, God called us to it very, very clearly, very plainly. And this is it before we'd ever even seen it. We had never been there, never experienced it, hadn't met the people I didn't hardly know Silas Clark at all, and God just called us. And uh, we answered the call. I told my church, the Lord has called us to uh, Minnesota to go church planning. I was in fear and trembling. I'd never resigned a church before. And uh, so I got up and I just poured out my heart and I told him, I said, there are so many places in the country that someone needs to go that I can no longer just stay here when God has called me there. And uh, I was fearful. And uh, we had a, a, a question and answer meeting after I kind of written a letter. And uh, the only question was, how can we help? And so the church that I've been pastoring in Michigan is very supportive and excited about this work that's going on there in Alexandria. And uh, so what we're going to be doing now, if you go to the next graphic here, and I think that's the last one, um, what, what our ministry is, is primarily focused on Gospel Light Baptist Church in, Alexa uh, in Alexandria, this new church plant. However, you'll notice the red counties, those are counties that are in need of a good Baptist church. And it is, it is our desire in partnering with Silas Clark to do in some of these counties exactly what he has done in Alexandria. And that is just simply go there and be a witness. Why? Because there's nobody else doing it. To go there and be a, a, a witness, do soul winning campaigns, have special meetings, do discipleship, start Bible studies in coffee shops and community centers and libraries in wherever we can and go over and have a presence. Now, it is natural to think that some of those are going to grow and mature into what will be an autonomous church. And that is an exciting thing, and we're excited about that prospect. And uh, some of them may remain just at small Bible studies for long periods of time. But we're excited about that too, because, friend, that's better than nothing. And so that's what Upper Midwest church planning is, is uh, all about, and that's what the Lord has called us to Minnesota to do. And uh, we're excited about doing this uh, with Elbow Lake Baptist Church and Gospelite Baptist Church and Pastor Silas Clark. And uh, my family and I, we're doing 40 weeks of deputation. We, are, uh, we just started two weeks ago, two weeks ago. And uh, so we're traveling for 40 weeks. We're trying to raise $2,500 a month, uh, and that would be, uh, that'll be supplemented. But uh, $2,500 a month in support, and 
that will get us to Douglas County, and uh, it will help us to start reaching out into some of these other communities as well. And so then the question becomes, why am I here? What is it that you can do about it? The number one thing is pray. Please, if you would, pray that the Lord would provide the resources that we need and uh, pray that while we are doing our deputation, we're, we're here for the next, uh, I guess, two and a half months. And then we're going uh, from Maryland. We're going to slowly work our way to California. And then we'll be all the way up to Alaska. And that's in the next 40 weeks. And so if you would please pray that the Lord would give us traveling mercies, provide the resources for our travels, I would certainly appreciate that. But the second thing, too, is give. And when I say give, I mean give to the missions program of your local church right here. Why? Because you guys are making a difference. You are. And so keep it up. Keep giving. You have a pastor who has a burden and sees the need. That's exciting. And get behind it. This is the cool thing about being called to the upper Midwest right now. God's doing some stuff up here. There are more people coming to this area. And these numbers are starting to change. And it is exciting to see. So praise the Lord. Pray and give. All right. Let's see. I think that's the presentation. I think that's the whole thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, turn, if you would, in your Bible to Matthew chapter number 10. Matthew chapter number 10. And uh, I am uh, still, I'm kind of working out some, some of the different parts of the presentation and things. Like I said, we've been doing this for two weeks. And uh, uh, so we're, we're going through, and, and it's a little bit different every time, and I guess that's, that's kind of good and kind of bad. And, uh, but I, I do like, I threw in, I hadn't previously brought up about being uh, uh, the one who caught the most fish. But that's true. It's really true. I've either got a knack for it, or it's the fact that I'm out there, and I just don't care at all. <laughs> and uh, maybe that's it. I don't know. The fish are attracted to my apathy. But... Uh, <laughs> Matthew chapter number 10, verse number 1, the Bible says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans. Enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, Freely ye have received, freely give. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time that we have here in your house this evening. Dear Lord, I pray that you would please be with us now, that you would help us to set our minds and hearts upon you, that you would be the center of our meditation and our thought now, that the Holy Spirit would communicate with us on an individual level. Dear Lord, you know what it is that awaits us in the coming days, and uh, you know what it is that we need to hear tonight in preparation, and I pray that that would come through the Holy Spirit, dear Lord. I pray that you would please feed us now from your word. And I pray, dear Lord, that you and you alone would be glorified by this and not any man. Help me to say only those things that you would have me to say and nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. 
Uh, in these verses here, we see the sending out of, uh, uh, of the apostles, and we see that Judas is numbered among them. And what I want to consider just a little bit is a couple of things regarding Judas. I don't intend to be very long, but uh, consider a couple of things regarding Judas. And I think that it would help because Judas is somebody who was with these guys. He's with the twelve for a period of time. And then we get to the book of Acts, right? And he's he's no longer there. And I don't know about you, but I have served the Lord with people who stopped serving. I have served the Lord with people, and I've gone to church with people, and I've shared pulpits with people who seem to be one thing, and then later revealed themselves to be something else, or ended up backslidden and things along those lines. And so, I, I, I think that there's a couple of things that we can look at when it comes to Judas that might provide a little bit of clarity here, or at least point out some things that we ought to pay attention to and guard against in our own life. Before we get into anything else, I want you to consider this, how blessed Judas was. How blessed Judas was that he was a part of this incredible ministry. Acts chapter number 1 verse 16 says, Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and had obtained... Part of this ministry, this is when they were replacing him there with, uh, with Matthias. And what do we find? That he was numbered with them and had obtained part of the ministry. Think, if you would, about the tremendous blessing of obtaining a part of this incredible ministry that changed the course of world history. This incredible ministry that was marked by a great power, that was marked by a great presence, that was marked in such a mighty way. He was sent out as an apostle. This means that he represented the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he was here given power to cast out devils. That he was given power to heal the, the uh, sick. What we also see is that he was given charge of the money. John chapter number 13 verses 21 and 29 talk about this. About him being given charge of the money. What does that mean? It's, it means that the part of the ministry that he had obtained was in using the resources that enabled travel, lodging, and food. Jesus was traveling around and healing the sick, right? And he was speaking and seeing people saved and preaching to the multitudes. And Judas was the guy that held the purse that, as much as human resources can, right, enabled this thing to go on. That when Jesus would sit down and eat, that it was purchased, that food there, had it not been given, was purchased with money that Judas had held and then gone out and bought some food. He was responsible for gathering these resources. That is no small thing. It's no small thing. This was the part of the ministry that he had had. It was also a resource that was used to help the poor and to help the needy, that there were others who were in tremendous need, and he was the guy that held this purse, assisting those in need. People would give money to Jesus, and they wouldn't just want it to go to the ministry of Jesus, but they would want it to go to those needy Jews who he encountered. This is a responsibility that is associated with power and with authority. One of the things that I learned pastoring was if somebody's like really eager to be in charge of the money, and I mean really eager, probably not 
Walk away slowly. Walk away slowly. It's the person who goes, well, I'll do it, I guess. That's the person that you want. Here we have that Judas here had this important position. But he was also, and this was, I think, his greatest blessing, that he was present for the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Judas Iscariot saw lepers cleansed. That he heard the power of the Redeemer's message. That this guy was present and heard with his own ears the most powerful and best sermons that have ever been and will ever be preached on this earth. From the very mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, Judas was there and he heard it. What a tremendous blessing. Judas saw the dead raised at the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a blessing to be present and witness this and have these things impact you and be a part of your life. This was the blessing of Judas. But think if you would, that despite all of these blessings, despite this, do you know what it is? It's an incredible opportunity. That's what it was. It was an incredible opportunity. And yet, through it all, we see that Judas was base. He was base in his character. He was base in his dealings. Turn to John chapter number 12. John chapter number 12, verse number 1. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? Then he said, not that he cared for the, uh, uh, I'm sorry, this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. You want something to meditate upon? Jesus Christ knew this. He knew that he was a thief. Verse 7, then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always. Look at this powerful scene that is just unfolded here where we see a couple of things, but first and foremost we see Mary's love. Mary's love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The chapter opens up in whose presence Jesus is in Bethany, and Mary and Martha are there, right? But Lazarus, which had been dead... Lazarus, which had been dead, he's the guy that can say that. He's the man with this testimony. What a testimony to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lazarus, who had been dead, and they're sitting around there, and Mary demonstrates her love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and how does she do it? Through her giving. Note this, that now Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and we knew that Mary loved Jesus before. We knew that Mary loved Jesus before and that Jesus loved those who were in Bethany. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. 
He loved them. And then he displayed his love. And it was manifested here in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And so what do we see? That in response to the great manifestation of Christ's love for them, that Mary now allows her love to be manifest in this way. Right? That she's responding to love. That's what the Christian life is, man. It's responding to the love of Christ. It's, resp- it's because His love for us was manifest on the cross. His love for us is manifest continually through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, through the church, through the completed Word uh, of God. All of these blessings and things which He has given us. And so what are we doing? Just responding in love. Not because we have to, but because we get to out of love and in liberty. This is the service of the Christian life. And so her love here is being demonstrated through her giving. Yes, this is important, but also through her serving. She gives not only of what she has that is very costly, but she gives of herself. She takes this ointment and she pours it out and she anoints his feet, right? And then she wipes his feet with her own hair giving that which she had that was precious to her, but then going a step beyond and lowering herself that he might be exalted. Giving of herself that he might be exalted and that we might receive this picture here. This is a demonstration of Mary's love. It's also a demonstration of Mary's generosity in the value of the gift. It was very costly, but also in the amount of the gift that she Pours it, uh, pours it out. This isn't a thing here where she gives a little bit and then takes it and sets it aside and says, oh, I've got plans for the rest of this. No, no, no. She gives it all to Christ. She pours this thing out. Not like Ananias and Sapphira, right? Ananias and Sapphira who sold the land and they got more than they were expecting and they were like, which that's always a blessing, amen? And so they're like, oh, we're going to hold back a part of this and then they go and give it. Peter's like, is that everything? And they're like, oh yeah, that's all of it. They're just looking for prestige and power in the church. That's what they're about. Mary here, she just gives all. She just gives all. She's giving generously to the Lord. But also, it's a demonstration of Mary's faith. And note this, that those who love the Lord and those who give to the Lord, especially of self, they are those with faith. They are those which have a faith. It's first and foremost in Christ as the Messiah. Why? Because she's anointing Him that here He is our High Priest, that here He is the King of Kings and being anointed as such, as priest and as king, being anointed. She's demonstrating her faith in Him as the Messiah. But also consider this, that what she's doing is worshipful. And the Lord Jesus Christ is receiving this worship. So we move beyond now to where it is also a demonstration of her faith in the fact that this is Emmanuel. That this is God with us. That this is not just simply Jesus the Christ, but this is also God present now among us. She worshipped and He received and accepted the uh, the worship. There's one more thing about this before we get to Judas that I think is worth pointing out. And it's uh, at the end of verse 3 there. It says, In the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. That here is a woman who loves, here is a woman who is generous, and here is a woman with tremendous faith. And what does she do? She pours out this ointment, and it fills the house with odor. That her love and her generosity and her faith 
it impacted the atmosphere of the home. That this was something that turned into a blessing, not just only between her and Jesus, but also the others who were present. That they got to enjoy the sweetness of this woman's love and the sweetness of this woman's faith and the sweetness of this woman's generosity that it impacted the home in which they were all in and others got to enjoy the sweet fragrance of her love and faith. My friend, you ought to labor to have a home like that. You ought to labor to have a home in which worship is something that happens out in the open in front of everybody that everybody can see who comes into your house, whether they live there or they're just visiting. What they know about you is that you love Jesus. That they're excited to go and be in your home. That they're excited to be in your presence because there is a sweet odor of faith and love and service that emanates off of you because you just love the Lord and you're a living sacrifice, giving Him all that you have and laying it out before Him. Understand this, that a household of godliness, that it is a joy to all who enter it. That the exaltation of Christ here, it lingers in the air. That's what's going on. Christ is being exalted and something special is happening. And everyone there gets to see it and gets to meditate upon it. This is a spiritual thing taking place. And it is to be spiritually discerned. And the joy that comes to be in the company of true love and of true worship. The joy that comes from that kind of fellowship, is the joy that's being shared now in this special and powerful moment. And then you have Judas. You have this powerful scene and this powerful picture. And everybody else there has the good sense just to sit back and enjoy the odor and the fragrance of what is going on. And they see that it is special. But understand this, that where Christ saw worship, Judas saw waste. Spiritually discerned, folks. Right? Where Christ saw worship, Judas saw waste. Where Mary here was selfless, giving of herself. So what does Judas do? He becomes selfish. He becomes selfish. Where Mary has no thought towards herself in response to that, Judas can think only of himself. In the presence of of sweetness and surrender before Christ, Judas becomes sour. He's sour and he's angry and he's bitter here about what's going on. And understand this, this is the big one, that when Christ is being exalted, Judas became indignant. Why? Because he thought he was being robbed. That was just it. He here views the exaltation of Christ as him being robbed. He says, whoa, 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 whoa. She has taken and given to Christ. And in such, what does he say? He asked because he was a thief. In Christ being exalted, he believed that he was being robbed. That right there, my friend, that right there will explain some folks, won't it? That will explain some situations. That'll explain some spirits and some demeanors that sometimes we're around and sometimes we bear witness to, but we don't quite understand. 
And it just kind of seems to elude us. And we say, I don't understand how they can quite be that way. Here we have Judas, Christ being exalted, and all that he sees is the robbery of himself. Why? Because he was out the spiritual Messiah. He was looking for that secular Messiah. Because Judas was base, in spite of all of these blessings, he became a betrayer. Matthew 26, 14 uh, records this. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went out unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Jesus, Jesus was hated here. And in the hatred of Jesus, Judas saw an opportunity where he could get back some of what he thought that he was missing some of what he thought he was being robbed of by the presence of Jesus. We know Judas to be greedy and covetous. We know him to be a thief. And we see here that his fleshly desire had no boundary. That's just it. Is those with a long history of serving themselves rather than, uh, than the Savior, it's an amazing thing to see them evolve and see the way that they will begin to cross lines and boundaries that you never even thought imaginable. And yet they will. They'll go there. They'll go to that distance. I think that it's worth considering here that Jesus was likely not the Messiah that Judas wanted. Why? Because Jesus hadn't come to overthrow Rome. Judas asks about this during the ministry of Christ. Jesus hadn't come to overthrow Rome. He had come to conquer hell and death. He had come to redeem man and to deliver him from the dead religion of works. And Judas only ever saw this mission as an opportunity for personal gain. That's what it was all about for him. This was a common thing amongst the Jews of this time and of this era. When you look at the interbiblical period, um, I think it started with the, uh, with the Persian rule, and uh, the, then we move on to the Greek rule, right? And that was uh, Alexander the Great, and he... He really, really liked the Jews and uh, treated them very well. But then when Alexander the Great passed away, his kingdom was divided up. And all of a sudden, the Jews began to bear tremendous persecution. They were treated very, very poorly. And so we enter into what's known as the time of Hebrew independence, where they fought and they won their, their, uh, their independence back. This was the Maccabeans and that sort of thing. And they enjoyed freedom <clears throat> like they never had before. But it was during this time of Hebrew independence that little seeds began to be sown throughout the Hebrew culture of secularism. Then we come into the time of the Roman rule, which was the rule into which Jesus Christ and John the Baptist were born. Well, the Roman rule was something that the Jews uh, submitted to almost unwillingly. It took Pompey three months to ransack Jerusalem. It took him three months to get inside the gates. Why? Because they had independence, and they remembered the persecution of the Greek rule, and they didn't want to go back to that. And so they wanted independence. Then, they have the Roman rule, and what do they remember? They remember all that great independence that they previously had, and that's what they won again. And so all of those messages and all of those stories that were told and passed down all throughout the Old Testament of the Messiah who was going to come, that even though the Word of God, like 
like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 make it very clear that He was going to be a spiritual Messiah who was going to suffer for our sakes. They ignored all of that and they turned Him into a secular Messiah. Meanwhile, at the same time, they start to split up with the Sadducees who are a little bit more secular and want to enjoy the good things of the culture. And the Pharisees who are a little bit more religious and want to separate from the Greek culture that the Sadducees love, and they just want to try and get back to that hard and religious, legalistic society. They believe that this was what was going to bring them back their, their independence. And so, when Jesus Christ is born and when His ministry begins, the Hebrew society is dominated by people who are all looking for a secular, political Savior. That's what they wanted. And this is the reason why they rejected Christ. Because He was not coming as the one that they wanted. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not on a white stallion. That'll come, amen? That's going to come. He's going to ride in as a warrior. That'll happen. But He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey being worshipped by the poor, not by the Roman rulers and leaders. This wasn't the case. Think if you would, my, my friend, about how Judas got so caught up on society and on secularism and on politics that those spiritual things of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were all entirely lost on him. That he did not discern those spiritual things because his faith wasn't ever about what he could do for the Savior, but it was about what the Savior could do for him. See, whatever Judas had going on, it wasn't centered on Christ or on the exaltation of Christ. It was centered upon himself in what it was that he was trying to, to uh, get. Rather than serving, what Judas wanted to do was consume. He wanted to be the beneficiary of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he didn't understand what the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ was even about all of these things entirely lost on him. And what do we see of Judas? Sort of our final statement that he had no view of the mercy of God, which will tell us that the gospel went completely over his head. He had no view of the mercy of God, and so what did he do? He threw himself at Satan's mercy. Somebody said that Judas kissed the door to heaven and yet perished. To perish, it means to die and go to hell. Kiss the door to heaven and yet perish. Judas, who was willing to put his confidence in man, who was willing to put his, comp, uh, his confidence in what he could steal, who was willing to put his confidence in all of these other things, but never willing to put his confidence in God. I think it's fair to say that Judas is a wonderful demonstration in Scripture of what we could consider a false conversion. A false conversion. Somebody that appears to have been regenerated, but in fact never was. Never experienced the new birth. The characteristics that you'll find of a false conversion are one, an unchanged heart. Why? Because you can change a life without changing a heart. You can change the outside. You can dress it up and make it look one way without the heart ever really being changed. But understand this. You cannot change the heart without changing the life. 
Now, that's not saying that people can't backslide. They can. There's Bible for, uh, for that. But what we see is fruit present in a changed heart. Luke 6, 45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of his heart his mouth speaketh. I think that one of the other characteristics that you'll find is a selfish interest in religious things. A selfish interest in religious things. That for him, faith, religion, right? That it was never about exalting Christ, but it was about his quest for power. And it was about his quest for authority. And it wasn't about what he could give or had been given, but instead what he could get and what he could take by any means necessary, a selfish interest in religious things. That's a humanistic-centered faith. Understand this, that we are here tonight not to pursue our own happiness, but to bring glory to God. Understand this, that the Lord Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so that you and I could be happy, but so that God the Father could be glorified. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross. Now, I praise the Lord that happiness is one of the byproducts of, uh, of my faith because I am happy and full of joy as a born-again believer. Amen? As somebody who's following God and being used by God, I have so much joy in that, but this is just it. My joy in Christ, in my joy in being part of the brethren... In my joy in serving the Lord, it is a byproduct of my faith, not a prime product of, uh, of my faith. The prime product of my faith is the glory of God the Father. There's a selfish interest in religious things. And then an inability to understand spirituality because of the humanistic focus. What we're talking about here is a tendency towards religion rather than relationship. And also this, a harsh judgment of everything different or outside of one's own understanding. In other words, if I don't understand it, I'm going to judge it harshly. For instance, living by faith would be something that would be judged harshly. Yielding to the will of the Father would be something that is judged harshly. Living a consecrated life and the giving of oneself Beyond reasonable human understanding. A harsh judgment because it is outside of their ability to comprehend because it is to be spiritually discerned. That if you can say, hey, I'm just doing this because God wants me to do it and that's enough and I'm just going to trust Him to take care of the rest, there would be those who do not possess the ability to discern that because it is a spiritual thing done by the Lord. I think that there's a couple of things here that as we consider all of this, that one, we can see the signs of a false convert, but two, that we can also see some dangerous and unsavory characteristics that the world can easily bring into a church and that can spread even to the saved. And so let's watch ourselves and make sure that we are faithful to put Him at the center and never ourselves or any uh, uh, other man and to exalt Him and lift Him up and not ourselves or any other man. Let's pray and I'll ask Pastor to come. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this opportunity. Dear Lord, I pray that You would just help us to be the best servants of You that we can possibly be. 
I pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to keep you at the center, keep you at the focus. In Jesus' name.